I think so, I just yeah. sound like I'm in a can. Yeah, you sound like you're in a can, and that you should sound like you're in a room. I could buy the best microphone in the world. I I am just a person who sounds like he's in a can. Oh, it's like teeny little super guy pops right up before your eye. and wormettes. Welcome to Gom Jabber with me and the Mua Dweebs. We're so excited to have you here tonight for this soft femme edition. Welcome, gentlemen. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Alec Boyle, <laughs> one of your esteemed hosts for this week. I have it on very good authority. This is the episode where we finally get our shit together, stay on track the whole time, and finish in under an hour. I thought it's, that was like the last week or the week before that we did that. No, man, I fell asleep reading last week. <laughs> two chapters, but it worked because we're starting on a whole new. Then it was Wadib. Then it was this the week is our before. Namesake. Yeah. Mm, that is where we're starting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm Josh Stevens. I'm your Gurney Halleck, and uh, oh, so rough and mask. Uh, well, it's partially because I have a microphone. Uh, so I'm Billy Brislin. I identify as hard femme, uh, but Josh says we've got a particular ask from our sponsors this week, and I'm going to give him endless wraps of shit about it. <laughs> I'm the Reverend Mother of this episode, uh, testing out some new gender identities to please men. <laughs> How do you know it was a man? It was just a sponsor. This is a podcast about doom and reading books. It's my first time reading a book, and these boys are helping me read it three chapters at a time for a thorough but flippant venture through the world of Arrakis. Join us on our weekly journeys. There. I like that that really NPRS at the end of Arrakis. (laughs) Arrakis. Uh, Let's get into it. So we went through the first third of the book. We are entering a new chapter of... The Life of Polly P. And I have to say, I'm excited for this week's episode because these chapters hit. I know Alec was real excited for that dinner party of intrigue um, that was super awkward because mm-hmm. that's, his, that's his thing. But this to me was very, maybe it's because it was like a more anthropological chapter until it got in the set of three chapters until it got in the end. But I'm excited to get into this. Me too. Um, when my father, the Padishah Emperor, heard of Duke Leto's death and the manner of it. He went into such a rage as we had never before seen. He blamed my mother and the compact forced on him to place a Benny Gesserit on the throne. He blamed the guild and the evil old baron. He blamed everyone in sight, not excepting even me. For he said, I was a witch like all the others. And when I sought to comfort him, saying it was done according to an older law of self-preservation, to which even the most ancient rulers gave allegiance, He sneered at me and asked if I thought him a weakling. I saw then that he had been aroused to this passion not by concern over the dead duke, but by what that death implied for all royalty. As I look back on it, I think there may have been some prescience in my father too, for it is certain that his line in Maudib's shared common ancestry. From In My Father's House by the Princess Irulan. Oh, that's a doozy of a quote, isn't it? 
<laughs> it's longer than some chapters earlier in the book. <laughs> that is that is true. Um, the the tie in here really has to do with um, with the mood, right? And our um, our sponsor today is all about putting you in the mood. Um, Lily, if you don't mind. I just I just got this copy, guys. So <clears throat> take a moment. It's okay. Our sponsor today is Ducal Mood. With Ducal Mood, you'll receive and treat every month a carefully curated box to help you discover your inner Duke. Let us help you ride that Caladan and wave as you slip into your Ducal Mood. Visit DucalMood.com and enter the promo code MYSON and get one liter John off your first three-month subscription. That's right. For just two liter Johns, you can find your Ducal Mood for three months. DucalMood.com, promo code MYSON. That's one word, MYSON. Let's do a 30-second rundown. Do you feel comfortable running us down, Josh, for this first one, since you also it's quoted? It's a big one. It's a big old chapter. This is that. a big old chapter. Let me, let me see if I'm, if I'm in the mood for this here. Um, let's see. Mood! Moods are things for cattle and love play. <laughs> well, then I better do my duty, I guess. Uh, I hope I remember which chapter we're on here. No, I think this is on you, buddy. All right. Um, so it Paul and his mother awaken on the dark side of the moist sphincter. Uh, realize that their tent is buried under, like, 80 feet of sand. Uh, they escape using some kind of Fremen sand pounder, I think is what they called it. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and then, uh, they basically climb up to the surface. Like, in terms of just, like, what happens in the chapter, they climb up to the surface, uh, they hear some animals around, then they realize that there's some kind of firefight happening near them uh and at the last uh sub paragraph the a, a ornithopter starts flitting down to land which uh with my uh ducal prescience i recognized the flick of those wings and i was like ah oh, it's duncan idaho <laughs> um yeah that was great I, I think it's been many weeks since I read this chapter. When I started my reread uh, today, I think I skipped this one. Oh, there's like I said, I don't actually think a ton of active or subtextual importance happened in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Lily, did you have any? This is the one that you missed last time. Is this, is this the chapter that put you to sleep? Just like so little happened, you were like, yeah. So this, like, so this is, we, I mean, we should note oh. again that this is a big old break in the book. It's a book two of this book. So this is the Paul stepping into his role, role as Dookie Jr. Modib is the name of the, the, the part of the book. And he's um, adopting some Latoisms. I noticed that... Uh, it starts off with one, doesn't it? He thought that here he truly began an Iraqing existence. And then his mom's talking again about the slickness of her suit. So Paul is like... That's what it sounds like to walk in a front of a stim suit. Still. <laughs> what did you just call it? A stim suit. Oh that's, a different, that's a different drug for rich people. That's right. <laughs> so Paul is like trying to be all Iraqian and be all Fremeny. And his mom is raging against the dying of the light. She's like trying to be that nice uh, 
aristocratic ladies here. And Paul is starting to be bitter towards his mom. This We have a moment in this chapter where he's like, I never has to be born, Harkonnen, mom! It also marks the return of our much derided desert power. I know, I oh, Who would have right. thought about desert power? They My really... father was a brilliant man. I mean, let's talk, let's talk about Frank and desert power again. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about that. Because this was one of your Frank apologist moments, actually, Alec. You're like, no, there's like sea power. Air power. No, I'm pretty sure I initially was very into mocking desert power. <laughs> yeah, I think, he, I think Alec did mock it pretty, pretty haughtily. Um, I mean, it's one thing to bring up desert power and its importance like one time, but Frank's bring brings it up at least like two more times this, in this <laughs> yeah. in this part. I mean, there he really thinks there's something to this. I mean. Why do you think he keeps bringing it up like this? Okay, so I don't know how much of this you guys know. The genesis of this book is an, a series of articles that he was writing, I think for the BLM, about what? an attempt to um, anchor some sand dunes in coastal Oregon using imported grasses. And he just like spent a bunch of time in the desert, probably got real stoned, and was like, it's like a whole world, man. Uh, and so <laughs> is this is true. Yeah, this so this is, is amazing. This is actually the third iteration of what came out of those. It started as articles for the BLM about whether or not it would be plausible to anchor the desert with these grasses, which is which comes up a lot. In the third chapter, right, where Paul and Leah are talking about, you know, turning this place into a land suitable for humans. Can you define um, BLM other than Black Lives Matter? Uh, Bureau oh, of Land Bureau Management. Of land management. <laughs> oh, you guys are streets ahead. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the second iteration was he serialized it in a couple of, like, science fiction periodicals of the time. Brief pause. I just love that we are living in even if our own little bubble world where someone knows BLM is Black Lives Matter and not Bureau of Land Management. <laughs> I just love living in this bubble. As someone who lived in super historically and contemporarily racist rural Oregon, uh, and urban Oregon is also very racist in its own ways. Yeah. Just all I sorts saw- of racist history in Oregon, but... Love it, love it, love it. Josh, thank you for putting me in this bubble. No problem. <laughs> there was this great tweet I saw the other day that said, no one is more racist than a white guy in Portland who thinks he's not racist. Oh! <laughs> um, and then, so, he, but he, when he published it in those magazines, like Asimov's and, you know, I, I forget which ones, but it was a much simpler, shorter story, right? Still just based around that sort of terraforming idea. And so I think that the reason that desert power and the the concept of terraforming this desert remains so strong in this book is because for whatever reason that was really that was frank's hobby horse in writing this i don't this book is such lightning in a bottle because Mm. right he that's what he was trying to write about and that's really not actually as interesting as he thinks it is but he managed to fill in all these amazing characters and this world around it and then in the subs- I know a lot of people like the sex- the subsequent books, and I don't dislike them, but they are so much more just like him holding forth philosophically, right? That just like 
so much of the spark from this book is gone. And it's just really fascinating that he had this, this moment of, you know, 400 pages in a reasonably small typeset, which our edition does not have, but, uh, (laughs) of just genius. And then that came out of a not terribly genius launching point. Yeah, I love it. I think part of my love, I, after reading these three chapters, I was like, did I ever read this book? I remember, <laughs> I swore I read this book in college. I remember none of this, mostly because I would watch the movie so much. But um, I love these books that sit in that intersection of like the world building that fantasy and science fiction share. Like that's the part of these sorts of texts that I love. Like nice narrative writing really interesting characters and that world building. And I think we do a little bit of really cool world building here. And what's so great about, I was appreciating more of Frank's writing in these two chapters, even though I didn't have a leisurely read and just be like, Oh, this is like lovely writing and really like intricate, uh, thoughtful world building as much as we poke fun at him and, uh, Polly. Yeah. But I think we should move on to the second chapter actually, because really we're going to skip, you know, this now Harkonnen shall kill Harkonnen. And, uh, the very first line of the chapter? Yeah. It's an important cha- it's an important line. I mean... All right. Well, make your case that it's an important line, but otherwise we've already spent like 20 minutes talking about a nothing burger. Um, it's actually less important than the next line I was going to bring up. But, um, <laughs> okay. Bring them both up. <laughs> and I have one thing to bring up and then we can move on. On, on the third page, we got some italics here where Jessica's th- talking about her unknown mother. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, because I don't know or remember, you know, she, she says, my unknown mother, Jessica thought, the Benny Jesuit who bore me and gave me to the sisters because that's what she was commanded to do. Was she glad to get rid of our Conan child? And that makes me think, here's a question. Mm, no, I don't think she was. Like, this is, <laughs> like, are we going to find out more about her mother at some point? Because... I don't know. You all listening can't see Alex like trying to hold information behind his <laughs> eyes, and I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I don't know why you guys ask questions if you don't want questions answered, but... <laughs> I don't know. I just think that other line just should be mentioned. Uh, but then there's a whole bunch, just bunch of Jessica in italics thinking about uh, the Harkonnens and Paul and how Paul's reacting to uh, finding out he's a Harkonnen, and that line kind of ties into that. Um, well, part of what I find grating about this chapter is that it's definitely a transitional chapter of establishing that Paul... So Jessica is placing herself subservient to Paul, which I am not about. Um, but she talks about, uh, he's a Harkonnen because of me. I was my Duke's only woman. She like is putting herself in the weird third person again. Um, I live now for my young Duke. So she's, and that is like weirdly Oedipal, reverse Oedipal. Hmm. Like the mom is being like, I now live for my young Duke. That's addressed. And her unborn daughter. Yeah. Yeah. She talks about how she's been reduced to just this, this breeder, basically. She even says it at some point. Um, But she does it to herself. She does. And then Paul recognizes it happening and points it out and says that she's scared of him. Where? I don't remember. Alex, is that ring a bell to you? No. Shit. <laughs> it might have been a prior chapter. 
Or it might be a later chapter. Or There's also chapter. that whole exchange with. Lee. But I feel like it's one of these exchanges while they're in a tent or in the desert. It's definitely since they've been captured. Oh, it also might be in a chapter me and Lily haven't read because your captain skips ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought we were supposed to read three chapters, but I forgot we'd already read one because Lily was a chapter behind. So I, I, I might be one or two chapters ahead, and I don't. Yeah, I apologize. All right, man. All right. Sorry, I'm so ahead of you guys. Reel it back in. Okay, so this chapter is just Jessica is is subservient. Paul is her new duke. It's weird. It's awkward. There's sphincters. There's okay, sand, hang on. Sand in the. Okay. Speaking of sphincters, let me lay out my alternative sphincter. Visit our Instagram page. What is it again? Gom Jabber podcast. Gom Jabber. Gom Jabber. Jabber. Let me lay out my alternative theory of the case for this please, chapter. Please okay. do. Frank was really proud of the tent he designed. He wrote a couple paragraphs about this tent and how you could collapse it from up on top of a dune, right? Mm -hmm. And a sonic sand uh, packer or whatever the hell it is, right? Mm -hmm. And then he's like, oh, I can't just describe a tent for a whole chapter. Let me write some moping around it. (laughs) Some moping in the tent and out of the tent. Yeah. Yeah. I prefer your interpretation, Alec. He's like, I have not got enough mileage out of that sphincter. Let me yeah. <laughs> ride it out somewhere. All right, that's we'll go with, we'll go with that. Can I, can I ask you guys, which, what do you think the mode? So, I mean, I think you're right, because here's a line. Hurry up, Paul said. I want to collapse the tent. A shower of sand <laughs> from the surface brushed her left hand. How much sand will the hand hold, she asked herself. Like, <laughs> is he just trying to be, like clever or bring up like old Taoist like sayings or yeah I think that that there he's also trying to attach some sort of mysticism and poetry to it right about sand and hourglasses and hands and that kind of stuff uh which is fine and not actually to detract from that as a literary device of his right but I still argue that the genesis of this was it's like that um that catalog with the ridiculous descriptions. Who did Elaine write for on Seinfeld? Oh, um, it wasn't Abercrombie. It was no Jay Peterman. Do you know that they're from Kentucky? It's real, and they're from oh, Kentucky. I did not know they were from Kentucky. And I did know I they know were people real. People that know the Petermans is crazy. This is a Jay oh. Peterman uh, entry for uh, oh, the Still Tent. Tough. Yeah. Oh my god, I love it. Okay. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next one. I'll read the. I'll read the All right. Please do. My father once told me that respect for the truth comes close to being the basis of all morality. Something cannot emerge from nothing, he said. This is profound thinking if you understand how unstable the truth can be. From Conversations with Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. So she's talking with Muad'Dib about her father. She's quoting herself? Or is this Muad'Dib talking about... Old Duke. Yeah, that is a really good question. Um, I guess that is that is uh, Leto. My interpretation of that is that that is something that Leto said to Paul, and then Paul trying to puff up the old man. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay. Uh, How profound is this thinking? You think? Well, I mean, it's sort of conish, right? In that he's saying, like, well, if you accept that truth is, if you accept that truth is 
fragmentary and unstable. But you also say that the most important thing is respecting the truth. Then it it's a it's both a nothing burger and sort of a reflect self-reflexive deep thought. Um, it doesn't interest me, but if somebody wanted to tell us why they thought it was better than I do, I would listen. I think it undermines his like absolute. This is where some of the Mentat versus Benny Gesserit views of the world, and we get into some cool Mentat, like the limits of Mentat thinking later, like, oh no, singular absolute truth. If you believe in a singular absolute truth of something, you are already fucked. That would be my interpretation. That's not what this quote is saying, but this is like, I think this is like trying to rationalize these Mentat hyperlogic. It's a, it's one of those masculine stereotypical rationale fighting with itself you know yeah. well yeah you have to respect the truth but you have to know that the truth is unstable well either it's truth or it's not truth i don't know i read this quote and i'm like i'm so inclined to dismiss it and then all i can think about is our president and i'm like there's no respect for truth there's no morality <laughs> i mean and truth has become incredibly unstable so let's I don't know. It just brings me back to that. I'm like, there might be something to this. I feel you, Josh. I feel like there's no... Alright. I don't know. That's I want to sit with this. I want to sit with it for a minute. Yeah. I don't believe in singular truths, but I feel like truth adjacent. You know, the assemblage, the constellation that is ever-evolving, that is... Uh... I mean, the notion that that you can have unstable truth in that there is perspective to truth, right? You can have something that is completely truthful, but depending on how, you know, who's looking at it and, and when. Um, Here's what I'll offer. Yeah. There's, I don't know how I feel about truth, but I know that there's bullshit. So if I have a philosophy, it's the, you can definitely call out bullshit. There is some bullshit in the world. Truth, mm. ah, truth is, truth is nebulous. It's complex. It's multidimensional. Bullshit is not. Bullshit is bullshit. Yeah. From the sayings of the RBGB Lillian Banana Brislin. Doctor. By Princess Irulan. Yeah, Dr. Lillian Banana Brislin. Put that in the book. <laughs> Print it. All right, so what do we get into? Who's, who's got a 30-second runner? Josh, you weren't ready for the last one. No, I think, this, I think, this, I think this one I think I kind of have here. All right, um, great. Sure. So you've got good old Mentat Thufur Howitt, <clears throat> and he is with... Uh, What's left of his 300 men, of his best men, there's only about, I think I said exactly 20, half of which are injured. Um, they are hiding in, um, are they in a cave? Or have they just gotten out of a cave? They're near uh, a cave. They're near, they're near a cave. They're near a cave, and they've got a, they've got a Fremen with them. Um, and they're talking... Um, first having this conversation with a Fremen and they can't seem to get their communication straight because all the Fremen wants to know is about water decision and Thufur doesn't yes. know what the hell that means. And oh my god, if Alec loved the awkward exchange at the dinner party, <laughs> this is the awkward exchange that I live for. I love this so much. I was like, I am living I was this. actually kind how? of angry about it, but let yeah, me keep going with the... Yeah, how did Thufur uh, not get it? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, but let me, let me keep going with it with, yeah, our, with our quick run down here. So, um, they go back and forth about um, the wounded and water decision and Thufur's totally... Um, totally confused, and the um, they keep on going. Then it all comes together when one of the uh, one of the men dies, and uh, how it makes a bargain with this fremen. They join the uh, they join the tribe. Uh, the 
the soldier's uh, body is taken to a nearby uh, place where they can get the water, and they merge their... Uh, Squeeze him like a Capri Sun! <laughs> yes, there's, there's that moment. Uh, the, the Fremen asks if they want... if the men, Why the men are upset um, about this, and he's like, oh wait, do they want to watch? And... Uh, <laughs> 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 which then, so guns are drawn, and how it has to get them to stand down, and then they are watching off in the distance there is a, a bit of a fight between the Fremen and some uh, Sadakar. Um, I think somewhere in here also, the Fremen talks about how their people have subdued some uh, quite a few Sadakar and Harakonans. They've stolen one of those um, artillery weapons. And we get to watch these uh, Fremen dispatch with some Sardaukar and then steal an Ornithopter, which is then used to kamikaze a Sardaukar troop transport. And it's all looking pretty amazing. How it's really impressed, uh, wishing that they had managed to have more time to recruit them. And then they are ambushed and uh, Thufir is subdued. The Fremen is killed and uh, lights out. How's that? That would yeah. be the first successful 30-second rundown of an entire chapter with minimal interruptions that we've ever done, guys. This truly is a new book in this podcast. <laughs> Finally turning things around. And it was me, because I, yeah. I failed at this miserably <laughs> multiple times. So No, it's because I was shoving pizza in my face, and I could. I was like, oh, do I want pizza or do I want to interrupt Josh? Ah, pizza. <laughs> Good choice. We've, we've got sponsors, we've got focus, we've got pizza. Everything's coming up dweebs. <laughs> I'm going to head over to my spice wine. I love this chapter, and I love that for me, Dufer has no credibility at the end of this. So, Dufer's there, and he kind of cops to the fact that they're fucked, that the walls have been breached, that there's an attack, someone's betrayed them, and he goes right the fuck back to Jessica. He's like, I was going to say, it was not someone has betrayed them. He knew right. it was it was that he was Benny like, Jesuit witch. That Benny Jesuit witch. Mm-hmm. He was right there. Oh yeah. I will live long enough to see her strangled. I should have killed that Benny Jesuit witch when I had the chance. Which feels accurate, even though they had like that little detente when they had the face off. Mm-hmm. It wasn't real, and this totally tracks with my experience. Where you're like, oh no, I really we have a, we have an understanding, we have a respect. He's gonna nope, right immediately. Immediately right back to it. How do you think the quote about truth and morality ties into this chapter? What's the purpose of it? To the Benny Jesuit piece? Or you mean generally? I just mean well, generally. I mean, is this about is this about Thufer? I mean, no shit, man. He doesn't. He thinks that he's. This is where all of his mentat training comes. The the fallibility, the inadequacy of it. That it is a whatever mentat training is. Whatever they're supposed to be able to do is. It's just really obvious that it comes from a single um, social strain. It is a single type of logic and reasoning that makes him incapable of what we, the readers, see is really obvious. I'm like, no, no, he's talking about, like, can he have your, your wounded guy's water? But he's like, no, I can ration. I can reason. I can't see these things. And I think, weird. actually, this is some good writing on Frank's part, though, because I think it ties back to somewhere in one of the earlier chapters. There's a whole thing where they basically say... You can only trust a mentat as far as their inputs, mm-hmm. right? And so if you have a mentat out in the desert with 
no real inputs, right? And just like these, uh, these shitty priors. He's just gonna start <laughs> spitting out garbage. So is this like when you when you let a computer watch like four hundred episodes of a TV show yes. and then write its own one and yes. it turns out amazing? Super. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The other thing I was thinking it could have to do with and. If so, I'll give Frank some credit because I feel like there's a better tie-in maybe if you're talking about customs, right? They're talking about the difference in customs. So the truth of disposing of the body in that way um, is seen totally differently between how it's right, men it, and the Fremen. I get the, the behavior of how, I get the behavior of how it's men. I mm-hmm. don't understand how how it doesn't understand what the fuck that guy is talking about. No, no, no. I totally understand. I totally agree. I'm just saying that yeah. if, if, if Frank's trying to tie the quote about truth and morality oh. and, and unstable truth to a difference in customs between, you know, the Calid- the Caledanans and the uh, the Fremen, then then I guess there's something Sure, to yeah. That. No, I reject that. Okay. Truth is not custom. Truth is like empirical fact and interpretations on the meaning of an act. The, the, the truth is... The body was taken and the water was reclamated from it. Mm-hmm. That is truth. The meaning imparted to that is not truth. That's interpretation. That's feeling. That's custom. That's culture. And that is like the ultimate downfall of the Mentats. They only have the ability to... This, is this. I think, in some ways, is maybe a brilliant colonialist uh, read. Where it's like, no, we only have one Western way to view these customs. He, he Here's here's further. I, I, Alec, give me judicial language to talk about this further evidence to the argument i'm trying to build here is that he hears how badass the fremen words are like oh yeah we like killed all those sardaukar yeah they were really fun to kill and they're like you killed how many sardaukar did you hear hear that they got these sardaukar and they're doing this and his response is not like whoa these are far superior fighters to us his response is i if only we could have trained that line yeah i was like train them in what (laughs) what are you train them in mm-hmm. what are you gonna train them into for you can't no yeah but hubris colonialist hubris that to me is like you think you have truth you only have one lens of seeing things and so maybe which is interesting tying into if like this quizette satirac stuff if the seeing and the dimensions the prescience although i'm not so sold on Polly's abilities there yet but like the untethering of a singular truth but I right, but that's why I think Josh is right about how to tie this back to the quote. In that, once you take that shift, that phase shift over to right the Fremen's truth as opposed to what the Fremen would describe as truth as opposed to what how it would describe as truth, it is then still ethically important to respect that as a truth. And I'm not saying I agree with that as a finality right but just like in terms of like that's the quote that they're attributing to the duke which again i don't know if the duke's smart enough to have said that but well well, lily i I think maybe your point is is spot on then that um you know the facts are the facts the truth is the truth what is being seen as unstable is the interpretation of the facts right yeah yeah that's why people say my truth which is like the most annoying term (laughs) <laughs> but the, what they're saying is this is this your is, emotional experience of something but to them that's their interpretation of what they've experienced yeah you're absolutely right and you know and the the you know how it's meant could say at the end of the chapter they come back to this thing they keep saying that they somehow brings peace between the peoples is customs differ but the meaning is the same 
So they end up returning to meaning as the thing that they can, like, okay, is meaning the same as truth? Well, they're How trying can you to have two different meanings that are the same truth? They're trying to attribute the respect to the, to the one who died, regardless of the action taken. They're, he's saying that you would bury the dead and they would do this. They would put him in a cider press. Regar- regardless, of the action, <laughs> regardless of the action and how much of a Capri Sun they make him, um, they, um, the, the meaning is the same, the, the respect. So hang on, before we get any further, I do have one, um, one other question about the plausibility of this chapter that I want to bring up with you guys. Yeah. Which is, if they started with 300 elite Atreides warriors and one Thufir Howard, <laughs> and 280 elite Atreides warriors are now dead, this 90-year-old walking computer somehow made it through to the end? <laughs> yeah. I don't buy it. That's not my truth. I don't believe it. He's, he's not, I mean, is he like up there fighting on the front lines himself? Or is he in back directing the guys? But they've clearly had to run from things several times. Does that mean somebody's just fireman carrying Thufir Howard around? Maybe. Okay. Maybe they just throw him in their space bag. Oh, it's like that Arrested Development episode. I was thinking, you know, when um, the guy has the the girl young man that like the the rocket, the old rocket that um, Lindsay ends up having to seduce. Do y'all know watch Arrested Development? Yeah, I have, but I don't know what the hell you're talking about. He's like a, he's uh, he was like a romp, he was like the workout guy, but then he lost his legs, and so he is. Um, they're trying to get his money, and then he's like, you know, oh come on, guys, guys. For the audience, Lily is playing a fantastic game of charades right now, but me and Josh are not picking up what she's playing. <laughs> you know, really? even, like, even if I was, I wouldn't stop her. So. <laughs> well, I think they're trying to get him to buy the shares, and then, and then, but then Lindsay ends up having the affair with the guy that is essentially just carries this guy around. So that's what I'm imagining. Oh, was, I do remember that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so that's the situation. There's. A I don't remember. Can you show me again? <laughs> no. So. I wish I had more pizza to shove in my face. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, this um, this was a good chapter, with the exception of how enraging it was to listen to how it not understand what the hell he was talking about about water decision. I find it validating. I find it validating. Okay. Like, oh, yeah. And the only thing I would. Um, add to your 30 second rundown josh is my favorite part of the chapter and i do not know if this will make a return but the fremen gets out a little bat in the cage from his pocket it oh. spits in its mouth and then whispers in its ear and then the bat flies away and goes and carries a message for them or something well, he, he hasn't even like, whisper in he's, he chatters into a tube yeah yeah the tube magically relays his message into the bat. Is that what it was? I was thinking they were going to open it up. It was going to sound like, you know, waves in a seashell or something. The man took a tiny tube, held it beside the bat's head, and chattered into the tube. Oh, he speaks bat. <gasps> then, oh, it's a bat lifting translator. the creature high, he threw it upwards. Well, the best part about that is that he, he spit in the bat's mouth as, like, a treat. Well, hold yes. on, hold on. Do you know that this is actually what... 
they do with um, with hawk hunting when they when they use like hawks to hunt in um, like Afghanistan. They spit, they spit in their, in mouth? their mouth. Yeah, I, I just watched this episode of this dude, of this guy. I forget what his name is, but he he goes to different countries and he embeds himself with like indigenous peoples, and he like does whatever their traditional thing is. And he went, I can't remember if it was Afghanistan or where he was, but it was like they these were these guys who ride horses and carry hawks on their gauntleted arm while they're riding, uh, and then one of the ways that they get the hawks to um, to like listen and return to the uh to the rider is they spit in their mouth that's like part of the training method i had no idea hawks were that kinky it's awesome uh <laughs> i am gobsmacked i i'm gonna have to look wow. it up and just just to yeah fact check well, exactly what i said but that, i mean that the whole the rest of the premise the, the story rings true regardless of the location yeah i mean all of central asia has a pretty elaborate uh falconry tradition so. yeah it was awesome it was super cool the hawk did we not all... want to listen to this this guy who was riding with them. She's like, you're a clown. Give me... yeah. Who hated me over this gringo? Get him the fuck out of here. Alright. We did a... I love this chapter. We didn't spend a ton of time on it, but it's, it's just like fun. It's world building. And this is where I am so excited that the Fremen are finally showing up in the book because they're interesting. They've got like an interesting culture. It's not imperialist. It's different. I mean, there's... You know, there's... My last thing I do want to bring up is they, I guess, right, they're still, you can still always be a little more clever than the Atreides, right? Because they literally (laughs) got Howard there watching these Fremen beat up on Sardaukar being like, oh man, these Sardaukar, or these Fremen can take any Sardaukar. And then like seconds later, the Sardaukar are like, nope, it was a trick. Right? I'm, uh, I'm, I feel like this is the first page turner moment for me. I'm like, oh my god, what's going to happen? How did the Sardaukar get the jump on the Fremen? So, <laughs> this is this is probably mean, but... Um, <laughs> Not Ralph. I mean, you know, I, gotta, I have to save it because I don't think we've gotten to it yet. I think this is me going oh, ahead. I'm so nervous. Oh, Why is there something yet? in... Okay. I mean, so what, what do you, so what do you think the Sardaukar are going to do with Thufur Howitt? Oh, well, I know, so I won't. Lily, what do you think he's gonna do? they're going to do with Thufur? They're going to torture him until they, he gives them information. Well, they're definitely going to take him back to the Baron. Uh-huh. And uh, it's going gr- oh, to be great fun when that happens. Uh-oh. I have to remember my comment about it when it happens. Okay. okay. I'm scared. <laughs> I, you shouldn't really be all that scared. It's, it's okay. I shouldn't have said anything. Okay, well, tune in. Or I can say it, and then Boyle can just cut it into. And Boyle can cut it into one in two weeks. We all not gonna happen. Not gonna happen. (laughs) Moving on. All right, gentlemen. I'll read this last quote. I'll read this last quote. You have to remind me because I'll forget. Muad'Dib could indeed see the future, but you must understand the limits of this power. Think of sight. You have eyes, yet cannot see without light. If you are on the floor of a valley, you cannot see beyond your valley. Just so, Muad'Dib could not always choose to look across the mysterious terrain. He tells us that a single obscure decision of prophecy, perhaps the choice of one word over another, could change the entire aspect of the future. He tells us, The vision of time is broad, but when you pass through it, time becomes a narrow door. And always, he fought the temptation to choose a clear, safe course, warning... 
That path leads ever down into stagnation from Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Arula. So, <laughs> thank you, Alec. I, I love this quote up until the very last line because the whole quote is, is pretty interesting. It's a good way for, it's actually a brilliant device that um, Frank's able to use to tone mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. The, uh, the ability to see the future. Yeah, um, he didn't have to uh, look on a Troy. The yes, movie. exactly. Exactly. Yes. So I, I, love, I love all of it. What I hate is Paul saying um, <laughs> that he has to. This is the this is the most um, dookie thing I think that he <laughs> that he could possibly say, which is to choose the safe course would be it would be is a is a horrible idea because it leads to stagnation. Like, I, I can't literally could not agree more. And reading that, I was just like, Paul just said that when he didn't know what the fuck was going on. Like that, <laughs> like that line on the temporary tattoo is in the Duke of Mood box. <laughs> like this yeah. is also the thing that you say after you've made a bad decision, and then you say, "Well, I didn't no, choose no. the safe path because that would lead to stagnation." Like, not not paying my cable bill is the only way I grow, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it's such dookie. I wrote, um, sounds like one nine hundred prophecy because it, it's just like the perfect way that mediums and psychics are like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, there's reasons that there's limits to this. You must be in a. It's it's great rationalization. So similar to what you all are saying, but also like this is how you, this is how you con some folks into thinking that you have prescient knowledge about Paul, all Paul you're universe. you're a god and you're ignoring your instinct to choose the clear and safe choice <laughs> clear and safe course that is instinct sir <laughs> although you know what living through 2020 maybe maybe Paul's in charge you know maybe we're, yeah look where this it's, is the, the year where it's led us which, yeah. which brings me back to that earlier chapter quote right about how shitty times breed psychic muscles, and it's just an excuse for Paul being an asshole. Yeah, yeah, no, that's oh God. yeah. That's um, what we're in, isn't it? Yeah. And this this chapter immediately starts with the thing that confused me last time, which is the return of Idaho and Paul being able to tell his uh, ornithopter flaps um, without even. <laughs> it's looking. funny how. Is there like yeah? Does Idaho have it in his contract or something? He can't stay on screen for a whole chapter because like he is always <laughs> leaving and then returning dramatically. Yeah, and in the exact same way with the exact same language. In fact, I thought that maybe I had accidentally hit the button and gone back like three chapters. Uh, it was just a bad edit, check. and Frank was like, "Leave it in." Uh, yeah, yeah, I was. Um, <laughs> I was definitely concerned that I'd end up in the wrong place. Yeah, you're not. You're not wrong. <laughs> okay. They finally figured. That after the, I did feel for Josh in the last chapter when ornithopters were destroyed. I was like, oh, this is going to hurt Josh. He's going to be so sad about these ornithopters. I was like, oh, don't worry. There's more. They're right here. Yeah, there's, <laughs> you don't have to worry. there's so many more. And like Thufer said, uh, so these Fremen can handle thopters too. <laughs> like, yeah, they can. so insane. I know. It's it's... Like, Wait, these Fremen can recognize themselves in a mirror? <laughs> They thought that they didn't like their reflection. Yeah. I thought they thought cameras stole their soul. Yeah. It's, uh... Also, uh, I don't want to miss the fact that 
Also, just for Josh's benefit, that Idaho skidded to a stop in front of Paul. Like, he did some sick thopter landings. and like Skrrr. I'm telling you, it was exactly the same as last time. The only thing that was different <laughs> that clued me in that it was a different chapter and a duplicate writing with missing the word minutiae. Like, that was it. <laughs> if he had written that in there, I would have been lost and been certain that I had Because we also have back. family atomics. I love that the family atomics, she's like, oh, no. You explode. So there's a big explosion. They jump over the edge. And Jessica's like, the family atomics. Don't worry, y'all. Don't worry, y'all. They're still in play. That was just him blowing up some sense. Well, so we've okay, still got on. the family atomics to look forward yeah, to. Yeah, it's just... Uh... Here's a major flaw in the, science, the, the military science fiction of this story. Oh, no. If, if shields are really common and las guns are really common, and every time you shoot a las gun at a shield, an atomic explosion results, why the fuck would you care about the family atomics? It's true. You just need shields and las guns, right? Okay, so here's the difference. Yeah. No, no, no. You just I, go no, to I Dave's why. gun shop Wait, and blow up a planet. Wait, no, no, no. You're missing it. I know why. Okay. Okay. So if you have the las gun or the shield. In the shield lasgun expl- atomic explosion, you are dead. But you can set off the family atomics remotely and not kill yourself. You can do that with the gun and the shield, too. You turn on the shield, and then you set the gun to go off remotely. Well, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> Why does anyone shoot lasguns in this place? Why isn't everything shot by, uh... Wait, how are they doing it remotely? I don't know. They did... No, they had to trick someone into it. They don't have. No, you just build a remote control like robot arm onto the trigger of the last gun. All right, all right, we're not getting. I don't know, man. Goldberg. They don't have machines like that. Robot machines scare the shit out of them. That's why they have. Oh, I guess that's true. You're not allowed to have robots. That's it. You've solved it. Yeah, you unsolved it. (laughs) Just saying, the. The uranium yeah, part got, of that yeah, would be see. worthless. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's what I'm excited about. Liette shows up, and the, the Atreides finally have to get it through their thick-ass skulls. It only took 279 pages. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's his friend name. And he shows up, and I love that. So Liette uh, shows up, but he's kind. And I like the I like the narrative play with his name, like, when it's uh, Atreides, they call him Kynes. And when it's Fremen, it's Liet. And now maybe we can just call it Liet, him Liet Kynes. But he's like, he gets there, he's looking at him, and his first thought is, why am I helping these people? <laughs> Literally, in italics. It's the most dangerous thing I've yep. ever done. It could do me with them. Um, and I'm like, yeah, but also why? And then he's, um, he says Kynes, Liet is like, he realized that the dukedom still existed solely because Paul's alive. And I'm like, yeah, but... Well, why? okay, so two things. Okay, okay what, were you, what, were you, what were you holding up the finger? But I answered my own question on the very next page because Liet is playing at the long con for Arrakis. So he's like, okay, if we keep the Atreides house, and this is what I'm interpreting, and I'm not actually good at this sort of house play stuff, so let me know. Mm-hmm. If we keep the Atreides house in play... There's some cards we can play here to keep the ultimate Fremen conspiracy of terraforming Dune and kicking out the Imperium. Uh, so this is a useful tool, which makes me, you know, I stand yet. I'm all about this dude or woman. I'm all about this person mm-hmm. in whatever version of the future happens. That's when I was like, 
Yeah, but then he comes right back again. He's like, no, really, why am I fucking with these people? Lovely. Um, Does that jive with your understanding, Alex? Yes. Well, I mean, yes. But I also wonder to what extent do we think that Paul is starting to employ the voice here? I wonder that too. Ooh, right, wait, because what, what moment does he do, do it? To... Basically, um, hang on. Uh, whatever. Because I'm still the back on the of... shields and lads guns. Because Jessica says, subatomic fusion, that's a dangerous weapon. <laughs> Duncan says, not weapon, milady. Defense. Thanks for the mansplaining. Like, what? <laughs> So yeah, what, a, what the hell was going on? What a shitty, like, semiotic dickery. Sorry, I couldn't get past that. Now we can move on. Okay. All right. I did think later, Alec, the voice part is when there's this sudden change in Liet where he's like, yeah. no, I'll die for him. And I was like, nothing Paul just did is very impressive at all. I don't know. Jessica seems to think, think that uh, sure, my, such a sure hand my son has with his people. That's an interesting point. That, right after well, do you think she would remark on it if he was using the voice? Right. Mm. I feel like the voice is one of those superpowers that's like, it's too convenient. And if I think that Frank has generally respected when it's happened and been like, I know I've introduced the superpower. Sort of like when you show a gun in the first act of a play, it has to go off by the third. Like, he mm-hmm. you know, he recognizes that he I, I feel respected by Frank Herbert. And he when the voice is being used, he's telling us. And when it's something else. May, well, but there's definitely a couple instances early where he uses it and doesn't. Or he I guess he does. He has the the effect E ask, why am I behaving irrationally? Yes. Um, right. Okay, fine. I do, oh, I, do, yeah. I do object to the part where Liette is like, oh, the dukedom does still exist. It's because of this boy. And it's like, I mean, I guess, yeah, on paper, but like. If you actually look at history, as long as there's some reason to keep that title alive, hmm. the, the society will find a machination to plug that hole, right? Yeah. But the bending judgment don't have to Paul use the voice this... for manipulation. Like, they still manipulate people regardless. And Kynes is constantly finding himself really enjoying the things that Paul says. From the dinner party, uh, you know, every time he sees him, like oh, Paul so you're says thinking stuff. that Paul, much like Jessica, was able to more subtly manipulate the mm-hmm. two guards. Paul has that power on yeah. his own parade of daddies. Well, yeah, well, you at least I, yeah, he does it to Duncan, and then he says, "This was one of the imperial ecological testing stations my father wanted as advanced bases." Paul said, and even if he's not using the voice, the you know, when he put on his still suit the proper way, when he knows the customs, every time that he does something... boy knows how to wear a still suit, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> the slickness. Every time he does something um, that's kind of of the way or shows that he understands sort of the way of Arrakis, kind, he, he, really gets, he really gets into Kynes. Like, Kynes really loves it. What? I want, I want to be persuaded by this argument. He plays him like a fiddle. But when have we ever known Paul to be subtle, 
or Wiley or anything other than like, did you know that there's birds that eat themselves? Well, ah! but so, so maybe there's a hybrid here, right? Maybe he doesn't have to be subtle here because what Kynes wants is written so plainly on their face. Yeah. Right? Yeah, All so. Kynes is a single issue voter. Mm-hmm. Green the <laughs> desert. That is what it is. And Paul realizes, as long as I promise to green the desert... And I think the missionary of Paratactiva has helped in getting Paul in with Kynes. And the more that he proves that stuff, that he is the Kwisatz Haderach, that he is Maudib, that he is, or what does he call him? And with Kynes thinking like, oh yeah, the Fremen will probably listen to this person because of how nicely they line up with this prophecy. I don't know. Earlier it seemed like he did. But it also seems like he doesn't, right? Because they're talking about... Lisan Al Gaib, and That's he says for, yeah. superstition, and then Paul's like, "Yeah, but sometimes superstitions have strange interactions with mm-hmm. reality." Yeah, I think that he's showing that his values are aligned with Kinds, and Kinds just kind of likes the guy. I'm I'm persuaded by this. Kinds is a Liet is a single issue Big time. supporter. Big time. That's that's the most persuasive argument I've heard so far, and I. It's further proof, like, I big heart yet love this character tied only with the shout out. You know how I feel about her. And and that we all have our Achilles heel where if someone, like, plays up to our one issue that we're just, like, blindsided, like, yes! It can be all we're underdoing. Let me also point out the in italics that you read, the it'd be so easy for me to take them now to buy the Harkonnen trust with them. Mm, no, it wouldn't. The Conans, <laughs> <laughs> the Conans would be would, would play would play nice for like ten seconds and then yeah, kill they them would all. definitely kill Leah. Yeah, handed over at Jessica a moment's notice. Yeah, no, no qualms about it. He they would use them as much as they could, and I think that Kynes maybe knows that in the back of his in the back of his mm, head. Mm-hmm. I think that he is savvy enough that he's like ah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I think this is just good instincts on his part also. I'm going to give Kynes some benefit of the doubt since I like him. <laughs> I'm um, interested. Okay, this is... I'm interested in what characters we're going to like going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, because, Super right... out. Doofer's off, Super's off the page. Uh, Shut out is dead. Uh, Liette yeah. is off the page at the very least for a while. More after bats. Yeah. There's more bats. We know Lily loves the bats. Bat. Bats are some of my favorite characters. Mm-hmm. Although, when I first moved to Kentucky, our house was plagued by bats for three years. We were caretakers in this place. Oh, my God. They are... It was like we were... The bat and me were equally terrified of each other because we were both flailing and unpredictable, trying to get away from each other in a confined space. There was a bat you in your house in his mouth. When did yeah. you spit his mouth? That's all it wanted. I didn't <laughs> You gotta be GGG, Lily. <laughs> right, this is what I need explained. There's two moments. One, when... This is why I'm like, yeah, why? Polly, this... He holds up the thumb with the ducal signet ring. So he's such a baby boy that the duke's ring has to go on his thumb. Lovely detail in this, which is just like undermines how absurd this moment is. Do you know... Do you see this ring? Yes. Do you know its significance? Yes, asshole, right? That's the big poly energy. Like, I got my daddy's ring. I'm the Duke now. You have to you have to do what I say. And yeah, he gets his way anyway. Okay, so 
just noting that. But then, I... Is Lance Rad a term that I should know from the non-Doom world? Um, it's, it's like a Nordic word. But no. Okay. So there's like, some, in just one page, it seems like they're like, we could do this thing that would tear the entire empire apart. And it, but they, Frank doesn't explain it. Like, we could have a Lance Rad and then all the houses would war and everything would be destroyed and they'd be fine. It's like, whoa, 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 what's, what's this nuclear option that has no explanation? They have yes. mentioned it already in the book. I was... the, the, That's fine. So, I, yeah, the Lanzarote is just like the collection of houses. Under it's the parliament, area. yeah. Yeah. It's... So we've gone from all of this like Arabic framing to suddenly a Norwegian house of parliament? Well, no, think, think of it this way. The, the Lanzarote is the... Um, all of the houses. This is the part of the Imperium. All of the um, the Arabic ah. stuff is the, the Fremen and in, 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 in Rakis like specifically. Alec has made himself a dookie signet. <laughs> oh, I like love a paper it. Clip. I love it. I have my my Gobjavar earlier out of uh, plastic wrap. Yeah. All right. So Lanzarote is like the Dutch colonialist. Yeah. It's, 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 All right. And this is the equivalent of them taking over. The gathering of white people. South Africa. Oh. Good pull. Good pull. Thanks. Oh, I'm seeing something else that's saying it's Dutch, but either way, it's. Um... I'm trying to work with the few colonies. Yeah, it doesn't have to write up. Yeah. They're all, you know, cold people. <laughs> yeah. Right. Guys, guys, remember when we could it's hang the out in person? It's like the the council of the land, right? No, I don't remember that. State council. All right. Fair enough. I think that's pretty good. I guess let's before we wind up, let's just talk real quick about uh, Josh. What are your feelings about Paul top gunning the shit out of that thopter at the end? Oh yeah, I was like, Josh is living for this. Oh yeah, he gets, he gets that tiger by the tail. He does the extreme jet launch. He does, and then, and then he goes like, and then he then he pulls the uh, the the perfect um, the perfect move. Wait, for his we house. didn't say why he had to escape. This is the moment, we, guys. Guys, you know, this is the chapter we actually didn't do the thirty second rundown on. It's true, we did botch that. <laughs> I almost oh, brought it fun? up, but you kept going. So see, Josh talk, or Alec talked big game at the beginning of the week. Okay, so they've discussed the nuclear option, and then suddenly. All hell breaks loose out in the rest of whatever cave, this place that they're in. Um, and who is it? Is it um, Duncan is out there fighting. So Duncan does return. And he's he's fighting. He's injured. He's behind his shield. He's stabby, stabby. The Sardaukar everywhere. And Leanne and Paul shut the damn door on him. They mm-hmm. shut him out there. The be- way of the knife. Ugh. I it, was heartbroken. It, it's actually, it's probably one of the most uh, actually affecting deaths in the book so far, right? It's like... Wait, he's uh, dead? Well, you are left to assume he's dead. Um, it also has my, I think, my favorite Dune quote, which is not a chapter head quote, but is a, a quotation that is the best in the book. Do you guys know what it is? No. I should have suspected trouble when the coffee didn't arrive. 
That is that is the best quote in the book, isn't it? Oh, nailed it, Alex. Uh, so good. Such a cool Liet move, right? To be like, all right, yeah. I think we need um I think we need to make some mugs that have coffee mugs that say that on it. It'd be incredibly oh, ironic. Gom Jabbers merch. merch. Yeah. Yeah. Merch keys. Love it. I'm into it. Okay. All right, so they sacrificed Duncan. Super sad. Shut him out. He's just, he's gonna, I don't know. We leave him to his fate, but he's fucked. And he's then fucked. Liette sends Jessica and Paul down a secret passageway. They escape to a secret thopter. We don't know Liette's fate. He's going back to fight or escape a different route. We don't know. And then Paul gets to do some Top Gun shit in the thopter. Josh is living his best. I was, I honestly skimmed those pages. Like, are you kidding me? Thopter, 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 thopter. Okay, this was a Trades Leaf on the Wind magic. Like, (laughs) he was flying like his house would have him fly. Are these passages, you know, like, like the exchange with the Fremen? I was like reading every word. I was like, oh, this is good. This is fun. But I just skimmed through these. I'm like, uh, anyone die? Anyone die? Nope. Or do you read these like action scenes word by word, Josh? Is that when you get really engaged? Well, first off, I listen to the book. And second off, then I reread it. And either way, every single word. Yes. <laughs> oh. huh. Yep. So that's where we leave them. They are reciting. They are floating along, bobbing along in the top of the beautiful sandy storm. In the Thopter, Paul and Jessica reciting the Fears the Mind Killer mantra. And, and that's where we leave them. And actually, hang on. This this did give me one sort of final insight that maybe we can use as like, we're also, we're closing out the, the House of Atreides portion of the book, right? And entering into the Moadib portion of the book. Mm-hmm. And yes, the constant talk about desert power seems dim-witted and obvious to us but maybe it really is a lesson that the atreides need to absorb (laughs) right because i feel like these next few chapters are going to revolve a lot around paul and jessica coming to grips with the fact that like you have to live it and interesting this ties into some other historical things that are kind of interesting right but like um a lot of European attempts to colonize uh, north, the northern parts of sub-Saharan Africa failed really gloriously because they just tried to build like European houses and farm European crops and then like Africa just threw them out the window, right? (laughs) And so like there is something to be said for Frank's assertion that these rich people would have a really hard time getting it into their heads that the tools that allowed them to dominate on their, you know, planet that is 100% the coast of Scotland will not help them to survive on this desert planet. No, I'm with you. And it's like this, I think we, or some of the chapters was like, uh, you know, Arrakis and their feelings towards Arrakis as a place. And like, again, that Arrakis having agency as a biome is really cool and fun. Not only it's people. And I, I think I was saying something in a previous episode that since then I've been pondering 
Um, I love the fact that the Fremen are just part of the human diaspora, right? They were, they are themselves colonists. And I think I've been working through how to be an anti-racist and the author makes some great reminders of like race itself is a social construct that there's more variation within uh, between there's more genetic variation between ethnic groups than within ethnic groups. Like all of it is just a social construct and it's like, um, superficial and uh, cosmetic and this is a great example of that where they're convinced that they're such different people but this is actually nope we are all of yeah. we're all human <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, and nothing is innate it is learned it is contextual it is like yeah expertise that is derived from the lived experience of the people that should be respected alright well I think we should wind up there do we have yes. any more sponsors this week I don't think we have any more sponsor. Uh, we we can we can plug one of our sponsors in my last comment here. Just I wanted to go back because you'd said something about how all like the tools wouldn't be used. Their tools wouldn't be useful depending on like the, the area. And I will I will point out that Paul is actually proving himself to be the smartest Atreides because when they're sitting tool. in their <laughs> in their frem in their in their still tent. Their what is it a frem? Hold on, let me get it right. Just so I don't cause the same problem. Frem tech. Our frem still. tech frem kit. Still tent. Um, <laughs> Say them all. <laughs> Paul, Paul specifically commented on all of the unique gadgets inside the front kit and how, you know, he wasn't even thinking about what they are or what they do. Just the fact that they are there indicate, wow, like, Fremtech put these in here because there is some very specific use that you wouldn't have for these tools elsewhere. And these are needed here. And he kind of gets his uh, his juices flowing. He's like thinking about them. So um, I'll just bring. I'll just let that. I don't want to talk about Paul's juices anymore. <laughs> well, they're just sloshing around in his in his still suit. Oh, yeah, it's his a... slicky suit. It's a book about a fifteen year old boy, Lily. There's not going to be any shortage of juice talk. Well, um, here's what I was wondering: if they go into Leah's lair and there's suspenser chairs. <laughs> Of all the ridiculous things to have in a cave lair on Arrakis, we don't. Do chairs, do chairs need help? They're pretty good at being chairs, <laughs> but they're not super good at moving. True. I will say that I, when I'm in a hammock, I am glad that it's a hammock. So well, maybe I'm undermining my own argument. And I could what be wrong here. Hammock? So there's two possibilities here, right? Okay. One, maybe you don't want a legged chair on Arrakis because you don't want to go tapping the sand rhythmically as you move your chair around Mm. the other is that i think that it's sort of this oh actually no we know never mind i'm wrong they use them on uh no the empire built this place it's an imperial research base Ah. so of course they're gonna send the ten thousand dollar floating chair uh, yeah, but Baron has him on Giddy Prime too, right? I mean, like it's not something. I mean, the, Gar- the Baron has him on the Baron, so <laughs> there you go. I want the Baron to come back. I am doubting that there's ever a moment where the Baron and the Fremen interact. But if there was a conversation that I would love to hear, it's that one. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like ga- game recognize game kind of conversation where they're like really trying to figure each other out. So, Lily, where can people find us on the social media? If you disagree with us, if you agree with us fervently or anti-fervently, if you are hard mask or soft femme, any all space genders, you can find us at Gomjabber on Instagram. 
Josh says that he might get his act together and get us on the Twitter and maybe some Facebook someday, but we are on Instagram. We try to, I try to make ridiculous memes. Oh, I was trying to keep it chill that I'm the one doing it, but none of these dweebs will do it. So uh, hit us up, send us a message. Um, check out the other great Dune podcasts out there. There's Dune podcasts. I have to say my favorite Instagram account right now is Spice World. They put out some, uh, or Spice World is another one. Spicy Dune memes is one of my favorite Dune memes. Um, what else we got? Well, if you people want to go look us up on uh, iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, and review us there, that would be great. That would help us grow the audience. We are growing steadily, but it'd be great if more people could get exposed to our... If we could only train the dweeb army yeah. and, 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 and harness I'll, their powers. I'll tease a future... Of- potential future guest here um i found out recently that some local breweries have put out some dune inspired uh and some dune inspired beers if you know of any other dune inspired beer or product product i guess that you think is worth mentioning please uh please let us know and actually if people do want to you can go to our uh red circle page just search gum jabber and red circle uh, you can actually sponsor us directly there, which would help keep the podcast drunk. Keep which... my dr- keep my dune juice flowing. Did... <laughs> oh, I is... regret that choice. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Later, dweebs. Later, dweebs.